Thank you for joining me for this teaching from Pennington AG Church. We are in the season of Advent and we are into our second week of our Advent series where during this time of waiting and waiting with expectation for God to arrive, we are focusing on the character of the God we see arrive in the pages of scripture in Jesus Christ. What is God like? What is revealed about his character as we look at and hear Jesus himself teach us of his very character? In our first week, and if you haven't watched that, you can look back on YouTube and watch that sermon as well. We looked at Jesus' own description of himself in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. In that, he describes himself as gentle and lowly. Today, we're going to talk about that character of gentle and lowly, or that character of kind and accessible. How do we see that interact with our own pride and brokenness of being human? How does Jesus' character interact with our character or my character? How does his difference of who he is interact with me? So I want to begin with a primer question for you. And last week we asked you, what do you think of when you think of Jesus? Today I want to ask you, what moves you? What excites you or brings deep compassion to you? What speaks to your heart or moves in your gut when you experience it? Give you a moment and think about it. What moves you? Give you a second. For me, aside from the obvious of my wife or the job I get to do, Jesus working in my life, I have two hobbies that sometimes interact or intersect. I love movies and film. I love hiking and nature. And a few years ago, I went to see the movie Everest that came out. I went with one of my roommates at the time. And we watched the movie. We're normal guys. It was, I think, a Saturday afternoon. And if you've ever seen the movie, it is based on John Krakow's novel of one of the highest death totals in one day on Mount Everest in the mid-90s. And so as you watch the movie, you see a lot of people die on the top of Mount Everest. And we're walking out of the theater, Daniel, my roommate, and I, and he asked what I thought of the movie. And I did not expect this. I was not prepared for this. I just started openly weeping, like walking out of an AMC theater in the middle of the afternoon, I was just sobbing. And I was like, what the heck? Why, why am I reacting like this? But I tried to put my feelings into words. And what I said to him was, watching a movie like this reminded me sometimes of why I go on hikes or why I try to climb a mountain or go out into a desert. Because repeatedly in the film, you see people put their very life at risk for a desire of doing something that will stretch them or doing something that is exceptional. One of the lines in the movie is spoken by a character who is there climbing the mountain, who's not wealthy, it costs a lot of money to climb Everest, and his school took up donations. He taught in elementary school in an at-risk neighborhood. They took up donations to send him to do this climb. And he said, I do this because 
I teach a lot of children who are in very difficult circumstances who can look at their life and say, I'm never gonna get out of this. I'm never gonna make something of myself. I'm never going to be able to overcome my obstacles in life to achieve. And I hope if they see me, a very normal person, able to overcome large obstacles and succeed, it can inspire them to do the same in their life. And I said, I think that's at the heart of why this is hitting me so much. The idea of achieving something extraordinary as a reminder that in our ordinary lives, we can do more, we can achieve more. And for those people who put their life at risk, not just climbing a mountain, but to achieve something exceptional. That moment moved me, surprisingly, shockingly. I don't know what moves you. It could be something as ridiculous as a movie on a three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, or it could be something significant in relationships, your family, grief, life, joy. What moves you? Today, we're going to talk about the gentle and lowly character of Jesus and what moves him as the New Testament uses the phrase, he had compassion on, or in some translations, moved by compassion. As Ortland says in his book that has inspired this series, Gentle and Lowly, the cumulative testimony of the four gospels is that when Jesus sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. In other words, the Bible's clearest picture of Jesus presents him as one who is wholly compassionate, as one who feels the suffering of our world and moves towards it. Last week, we talked about the character of Jesus as gentle and lowly. And as an overview, Jesus is kind and accessible by his very nature. You cannot sin more than he can forgive. You cannot run further than he is willing to follow in his pursuit of you. But that gentle and lowly image of Jesus can sometimes in our minds become static or passive. Jesus, that's his character, and he's just standing there waiting. He's just there, unmoved and, and ready for when we move towards him. The gospel picture of Jesus is not one where he's passively waiting with his character, but where he is actively moving towards us and moving into our pain. Today, we talk about how the character of Jesus reacts with the character of our world, or more specifically, the character of you and I, the character of Brian, or the character of Dan, the character of those of us interacting with Jesus. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 and 36 share a story about Jesus that reveals his compassion. It says, Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news of the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on them. We'll talk about three things today about how Jesus' character interacts with ours. The first will be that Jesus is drawn to our suffering. The second will be that Jesus' reaction to our suffering is the natural move of healing and compassion. 
And then lastly, we will look at Jesus' goodness in that interaction as contagious. Let's talk about Jesus being drawn to our suffering. We see it here in this passage. The phrase, he had compassion on them, or the word compassion itself, is an important word to understand the biblical definition of compassion. The biblical word of compassion is a variation of splagnon. Actually, if you say it properly, it needs to be splagnon. That's the Jewish pronunciation of this term translated into Greek that we then read in English. And splagnon is a reference to our bowels, literally, the lower portion of our stomach. And when it says compassion, it means to feel something in your bowels, to feel something in your stomach, in your gut, to be moved in your stomach. Like being on a roller coaster, going over that dip, or being in a situation where you are so associating with the pain of those around you, you can feel it in your gut, right? We've had these experiences. This is Jesus having an experience where someone else's pain and brokenness moves him spiritually, emotionally, and physiologically. In his body, he is moved by these. But compassion is not just empathy or the ability to feel someone else's feelings. Compassion is also the activity out of that feeling. So it is being moved in your gut by someone's experience that then drives you to heal it, to respond to it, to comfort it. So when it says Jesus has compassion on them, it means Jesus felt what they were feeling and then Jesus took activity to remedy the pain. That's biblical compassion, to take on someone's suffering and then to actively work to heal and resolve it. We see multiple examples of this in the New Testament. Throughout the Gospels, this phrase is used a lot. It says, Jesus had compassion on them in circumstances like when they were lost here in Matthew 9. They were lost. Jesus teaches them, heals them, has compassion on them because he is the true shepherd that finds us when we're lost. In another, Matthew 14, it says he had compassion on them because they were sick. Matthew 14, 14. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Jesus is our great physician. God is our healer and he is moved by their sickness and so he brings healing. In Matthew 15, it says he was moved because they were hungry. Matthew 15, 32. Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have had nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. I love that. I'm unwilling to let them continue to suffer. Jesus takes on their hunger, that moves him, and then he provides because he is our provider. Lastly, in Luke chapter 7, Jesus is moved by their sorrow or their mourning at loss. We see this in Luke chapter 7. Famously, we see this in John chapter 10. But in Luke 7, 13, referring to a weeping mother whose son had died, it says, When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said, Do not weep. Jesus has compassion on the sorrowful, and he responds as the great comforter and our joy and the one who brings the resurrection and new life. When we speak of the heart of Christ Jesus as compassionate, what we mean is he looks on the condition of the fallen, broken world 
and he's moved by our suffering, by the reality of our lives, by the difficulty in which we live. And that emotion, that movement, that splagnon, then moves him to respond. It's what calls him to this earth. It's what called him to the cross. It's what called him to interact in our fallen and broken world. And it is precisely our God who moves towards us in our suffering that is the one who can heal and respond to our suffering. And into this, we see our second point. Jesus' healing of this world is natural. And you may say, okay, what do you mean by that? What I mean is, when we read the Gospels and we read about Jesus doing miraculous works, healings, multiplications, um, ending storms, resurrections, we think of these as supernatural. We use the term supernatural because it transcends the natural order. What the Gospels and the story of Jesus' life are trying to tell us is the creator of all things the God who breathed life into earth, the universe, and heaven, the God who animates all of this, is telling us the order we see the world in, where there is death and decay, where there is chaos and randomness, where there is loss and injustice, is not the natural order of how he's created this world. And so we see the life of Jesus, and it's as if heaven is breaking through the disorder of earth. Heaven is breaking through the unnatural state of our world to remind us of the natural order of our world. Matthew 14, verses 13 through 21, Jesus feeds the 5,000. He provides for them, he feeds them, he multiplies. It is showing us the natural order is that every child of God can be fed, not suffer, not suffer with loss and droughts and hunger, but should be fed. Mark 4, 35, Jesus calms a storm and reminds us that the chaos of nature is not how it is meant to be, that God triumphs over and has built creation with a order for life and life-giving weather and seasons and life here on earth. Matthew 8, 1 through 4, Jesus heals a sick man who comes to him and says, if you will, Jesus, and he says, I will, that the natural order is not that our bodies would decay and that we would suffer in this flesh. Mark 9, Jesus cast the demon out of a young boy who's suffering over spiritual affliction. And Jesus shows the natural order of this world is that forces of evil would not have influence and power over God's image bearers on this earth. And lastly, we see in John 11, the resurrection of Jesus' friend Lazarus. As Jesus shows us, the natural order of this world is that no human being would die, but that we would live by his power and his call. Jesus' work is the restoring of creation back to its natural order. Jesus' compassion is seeing the world and seeing his created children living in the way they are not meant to live. And it's his compassion coming to restore it back to the way it was meant to be. This is why it is important to understand the character of Jesus, because Jesus is God. And when we understand Jesus and who he is, we understand who God is. And by understanding our maker, we understand our place in this world 
and his plan for us in it. So what Jesus does is not what's supernatural, but is what's natural. And the life we live is what is below our natural calling. What Jesus teaches is how the world is supposed to work. What Jesus heals is what is not meant to be broken. And when Jesus feeds, he is showing us we are not meant to be hungry and in need. Jesus' miraculous work in the Gospels is the natural order of heaven and earth breaking through our sin and brokenness. Death is unnatural. Suffering and injustice is unnatural. Hunger and loss is unnatural. We see Jesus speak this to us in John chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. Jesus says, full of compassion, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came so that they would have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus has come to restore us back to who we are called to be. And it is his compassion that draws us into his goodness. Now let's look at the final point. That Jesus' goodness itself is contagious. It's contagious, it's infectious, it transforms, and it spreads. In order to understand this, we need to understand a little bit of the Old Testament. To see what Jesus is actually doing, we need to see what was happening in the Old Testament that Jesus is speaking to. In the Old Testament, there are sacrificial systems. Dealing with, if you read the book of Leviticus, it talks a lot about clean and unclean. It talks a lot about blood. In cleanliness and uncleanliness, we learn the pattern of God's people in the Old Testament. God is righteous. Men commit sin that are unrighteous. In order to be restored in relationship with a righteous God, you must be cleansed. But not cleansed like hygiene, taking a bath. Cleansed from our brokenness through blood, through death, through the sacrifice of something good and righteous. Leviticus chapter 5. Let's look at verses 3 and 6 to understand this. Talking about uncleanliness in the Jewish culture or the Hebrew culture of the time. If he touches human uncleanness of whatever sort, his uncleanness may be which he becomes unclean, and it is hidden from him, and then he comes to know it, he will be guilty. He shall also bring his guilt offering to the Lord for his sin, which he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin. The first part here, he's become unclean by touching something unclean. The model in the Old Testament is that uncleanliness is contagious. You can become broken, sinful, unclean by touching something that's broken, sinful, and unclean. It even says, even if you do it accidentally, even if you didn't know that the person or the object was unclean, doesn't matter. It still can make you unclean. And then it says the only way to be made clean again is through a sacrifice of righteousness given to cleanse yourself. And so they developed this complex system of clean and unclean, how to become clean, how to avoid uncleanliness. 
And by the time Jesus comes, it's kind of chaotic mess. We see this in the Pharisees, how they talk to Jesus. And a large part of it was due to the mentality that uncleanliness is contagious, that something being dirty can make me dirty, that something broken can get me caught up in being broken. We still live under this mentality. If I spend too much time around broken people, it's going to affect me, I'll be broken. If I watch too much of that garbage, it's going to affect me and I'll become more like that. We still think in these terms and in many ways they are true. These are principles laid out in life. The result is this idea in our minds, the cleaner we are, the more we try to avoid unclean things. And the more dirty something is, the further we try to stay away from it. And so it creates this dynamic where the cleaner you are, the further you move away, the more dirty something is, the more you hope it's further away. It creates this huge chasm between unclean things and very clean things. To give you a picture of it, we own a cat. Our cat is white and has white fur. Her white fur gets all over the house. We try to vacuum, we do a lot to keep the house clean, but can't really help it, it gets on you. If it's a Saturday and I'm just wearing gym clothes or sweatpants or hanging out in the house, I don't really care that the hair gets on me. Doesn't really matter, it's already all over my pants, so doesn't matter to me. But if I'm wearing a black suit and I have to go perform a wedding or a funeral or an important event, I know I cannot sit on any couch, I cannot go near my cat, I cannot sit on the floor, or go near a rug, because the minute I do, my very clean black suit will immediately become infected with cat fur and it will look like I rolled around in her litter box. I can't help it. The cleaner I am, the more I try to avoid the things that are dirty because they infect and are contagious to the things that are clean. And so Jesus, is very clean, he's very good, he's very righteous. In fact, Peter, one of his disciples, writes about him in one of his letters, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, that Jesus never sinned nor ever deceived anyone. Jesus is perfectly clean. And so the natural impulse would be the cleanliness of Jesus should make him see the depth of our uncleanness as horrific. He is so righteous and perfect, the depth of our sin and brokenness should be abhorrent, appalling to Jesus. And yet, we find the pattern of Jesus' life in all four accounts of the Gospels is the righteous, perfect Jesus repeatedly moving towards, interacting with, and embracing all the things that make us unclean. In fact, he repeatedly breaks these Levitical laws that we just read. For example, Matthew chapter 8, verse 3, a man with leprosy, a man unclean, a man that if you touched would also make you unclean. This is what Jesus does. Jesus reaches out and he touches him. He says, I am willing, he said, be healed. And instantly, the leprosy disappeared. What we see here is Jesus restoring back the natural order of the world through his presence. We see the world as dirty things make clean things dirty. What Jesus is revealing is his cleanliness, his character and beauty 
is itself contagious. His beauty and righteousness is infectious to the rest of the world. Jesus, perfectly righteous and good, touches a man unclean. Jesus doesn't become unclean. The man becomes healed and whole. And we see this, the very nature of Jesus breaking through into our world. Why it is so important to understand the character of our God made in person in Christ Jesus because he reveals to us his character while righteous, my character while sinful and broken is not driving us apart because of my brokenness and his righteousness. It is drawing us together because he wants to, in his righteous, gentle goodness, transform my brokenness into healing and life and cleanliness. And as he interacts with the world, Jesus makes it good. Jesus heals things that are sick. Jesus drives out demons that are bringing evil into the world. Jesus feeds where there is hunger. Jesus challenges injustice. Jesus dies for the sins of the world. And he takes his goodness and he transforms our world through his character by his compassion. What is our first impulse when we see something broken or unclean? It's like, kind of just pull back from it. Maybe we won't say it, but maybe it moves us, not with compassion, but maybe with disgust or with pride that we're not like that. As we put on the character of Jesus, it should transform our hearts and our guts to be moved with compassion for those suffering and struggling in the world. But it begins with us that Jesus is moved by your suffering. Jesus is moved by your brokenness and sin and pain. And rather than looking at your life and pulling back and saying, well, I'm so very good and you're so very broken, his compassion is drawing him to you, is drawing him into you. And we see throughout the Gospels, beyond the miraculous works are the very human works of touch of Jesus holding the hand of someone who's never been touched because of his uncleanliness. We see Jesus embracing a woman considered unclean and wrapping his arms around them. And we see the very healing nature of our God who has made us, drawing us in by his compassion to transform us by his goodness. Jesus in his compassion is reversing the order of the world and bringing it back to its natural state. Jesus, the clean one, making our world clean again. Jesus, through his compassion, drawing us into him. Jesus, restoring back the natural order of his gentle and lowly personality and character. If you'll pray with me in this moment. You may be watching this sermon and you've maybe watched a few of them, but you haven't yourself taken a concrete step towards God of inviting Jesus into your life. I want to give you a chance today to pray a first prayer of invitation, of inviting Jesus into your life, inviting that compassion, that gentle and lowly spirit to interact with your sin and brokenness, to bring healing to your life. If you'll pray this with me. Jesus, in this moment, we seek you, we reach out to you, for healing in our lives. 
for forgiveness in our lives, for transformation in our lives. We want to be affected, infected by your goodness and mercy and love. Jesus, we believe that you are God, created this world, that you are very good and gentle and merciful, that you put on flesh and showed us the natural order of this world, an order built by and empowered by love, and that that love drove you to the cross where you took our sin and shame and you died in our place. You were buried in the ground and on the third day you rose from the grave, resurrected, full of glory, and in that you promise us our own resurrection one day by your power and in your fullness we would live forever with you. Jesus, you gave your life for us. In this moment, we choose to give our life to know you, to be transformed by you, and to discover your love. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I thank you for joining me for this teaching from Pennington AG Church.